0: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365 day returns.
1: You experience someone else's racism, but you don't live it. And same thing with like you're experiencing other people's, you know, gender and sexuality and ability and all that kind of stuff. Because you don't live it, you get to opt out. So the onus of responsibility is upon you to educate yourself because you have the privilege of not living
0: that life. Welcome to The Deep. I'm Zoe Marshall. In my early 20s, a lot of traumatic things happened. And ever since then, I have had this fascination with people and their stories. This is The Deep. Are you a feminist? What about an intersectional feminist? Do you know what that really means? It's not just hairy armpits and burning bras, fighting for equal pay. In fact, we're currently seeing more and more white feminism. You may be one of them and not even know it. Today we dive deep into a topic. Intersectional feminism. Don't let the big words turn you off. This is a passionate conversation. Insightful and one full of shame. Especially for me. Be wide awake for this one. It's going to change everything. You were saying you were <laughs> nervous.
1: I think what we're gonna be speaking about today is something that, you know, I really care about and you know you care about as well. And I hope to give it the honor, the dignity and the um the 3d nature that it deserves and i think i'm kind of glad that we're nervous about it because i think it, it shows that we care and it shows that we're sitting in a place of uncomfortability
0: which is what is needed we're discussing intersectional feminism so lots of people listening will go oh i'm a feminist right? Yeah, like, I know where it comes from, burn the bra, hairy armpits, women's rights, equal rights, pay women equally. Um, And yes, feminism can be all of that. But when we look at intersectional feminism, it gets really interesting. And can you explain to us what intersectional feminism actually means?
1: Feminism is, you know, to me, best understood as you know, the theory of political, economic, and social equality. Now, what that kind of looks like historically, I think it's really like you said, like it's been centered around women's rights, um, whether it's like right to vote, equal pay, you know, autonomy over body. And intersectionality sits in kind of like the third wave of feminism. So the first wave being in the nineteenth and I, I think the early twentieth century, where it focused on equal. Um, you know, equal contract and property rights for women, opposing ownership of married women, the right to vote. So things like I am not your property just because I am married to you, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then the second wave occurred in like the 60s and to the 80s, I think, Um, and that focused on issues around equality and discrimination and kind of built on, you probably heard the famous saying, like the person is political. And that kind of came out of that movement and identified how women's Cultural and political inequalities are intrinsically, like it's linked to their lives and how it's not just about the right to vote. It's how we're socialized into some of these structures and how encourage women to understand how their personal lives are reflected in sexist power structures. Mm. Now this is all great, and I've got my fist in the air and everything, right? Like we're here, we're not shaving our armpits, we're like full for it throwing bras up. But unfortunately, it's not as inclusive as the theory sounds, right? So even when I said women's rights, there's already a gender binary that exists there of men versus women as if there's only, you know, one or the other as a gender expression. So that's already excluding a ton of people. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, there's an assumption that, um, that during these first two waves that, that, and I put this in quote women, um, they have the same struggle or their issues are the same. When it wasn't, and if we even look at what happened here, and you know, in so-called Australia, what's going on is that you have, in the 1900s, during the same first wave, you got you have Aboriginal people, including women, who don't have the right to vote, even after this all, all this stuff happened, and then um, so this so this feminism didn't include them, and in the 60s they were, they finally were allowed to vote but they're not officially allowed to be counted in the 70s until like 1967. So that's like from like 1900s to 1967, just in that period of time that we're looking at in terms of feminism, the Aboriginal people and Aboriginal women weren't included. So when we we talk about what feminism is, I think we already need to sit in a place that like it really didn't include a lot of people. It's, it's this idea that we're not in the same boat, we're not in the same storm, we're not facing the same issues. So that's kind of where you get into the, the third wave or phase three, however you call it, um, where the term that you brought up, which is intersectional feminism um, or intersectionality, and intersectionality is kind of brought up by Kimberly Crenshaw um, with her work. Um, and what, what it kind of it brings about this idea that people's lives Um, as intersectional and demonstrating how race, class, ethnicity, religion, gender and nationality are all significant factors when discussing feminism because they haven't been discussed previously. Mm. And when I bring up the idea of like we're not in the same boat, I think the commonality that exists is is that we're all not white, able-bodied, cisgendered men. No by cisgendered i am speaking about um it's a term to describe that people's you know personal gender doesn't um correspond with their birth sex, so if you are not white able bodied cisgendered man, that is the idea of kind of like what feminism is kind of fighting uh, against it's this uh system this patriarchy this um capitalist system that we have that upholds the beliefs of these people, and what's happened is a lot of white women, and we're going to come into the term of white feminism, it's not white women who are feminists, by the way, just just to put it out there because I know know people are like, what? People are going to be
0: like, I am that, I am white, I'm a white feminist, yes. Are
1: you speaking directly to me, Mr. (laughs) Meadie? It's not that. But it's this idea that feminism has been white because it has focused on the intersectional issues that are, are concerning only to white women, white cisgendered able-bodied women. It is when, when we, we try to include intersectionality, and, and it, this practice is kind of constantly evolving, and our understandings are evolving. But it's to say that the further you are from a white able-bodied cisgendered man, the more inequality and oppression that you face. So when we're doing this fight and when we are fighting for the political, economic, and social equality, it doesn't stop at white women. It goes further down.
0: So a white feminist is not a feminist that is, has white skin colour. Is it a feminist that only fights for the rights of white people?
1: Most often, yes, so it's a feminist who isn't looking at all the other identities that people have, so if you are if the thing that you don't have privilege to because I didn't mention it, but when we, when we are talking about intersectionality and we are talking about our positionality right where we are positioned in terms of that kind of like body, and I gave you just a really short version, but uh where we are positioned, we are talking about the things that we are privileged to, so you know privilege is a special right advantage or something granted to us um, or available to us. These are some things that we just we are granted, and with that with the privilege that we have it's not about sitting there feeling guilty about it, but it's about kind of understanding that that privilege comes with a bit of power, and the more power that you have. The more work that you should be doing, so the more privilege that you have, the more work that you should be doing at looking at the impacts of your privilege and being aware of how your privilege filters and augments the gaze that you have and um and how you view things so in terms of going back to like your question around white feminism, I think or white feminists, I think what ends up happening is like the fight is real when it comes to certain things that concern them, so whether it's about reproductive rights, whether it is about um, work rights or wh- whatever the situation may may be, but if you're looking at this from an intersectional perspective, it's kind of like, okay, well, so what does reproductive rights look like for an Aboriginal woman, mm. you know, who's also poor, who's also, you know, hasn't got this level of education? What does it look like for a, a trans Muslim woman right so so this is what we are saying when when we're saying being intersectional in your practice because um an example I I I was you know we when I spoke with you earlier um was like I was thinking of you know of work and what that looks like in the work context and how in the work environment I think our intersectionality comes out the most and how people um are coming to this environment that's shared like um, so, if, uh, so I'll use myself as an example I work in the um, uh, in the health kind of like the the mental health kind of area the social work kind of area and 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 that's that's where I work right so if if you're looking at that you're looking at like a organizations often most often that I've um, are, are filled with people who are a bit of a you know lefties who are kind of um, quote-unquote you know socially conscious or kind of work in the social work practice to, to to do to do well. Like there's a lot of goodwill in these areas. Now, it's, it's probably a lot different if I was working in the corporate sector. It might look different if I was working in the arts or the media sector or even in a trade, right? The idea is that we're all coming together for this whatever work that we are doing, right? And most often we are finding barriers in our workplace. So one that's quite often brought up is like the pay pay difference. Or the idea that you can only get promoted so far, right? So it's like, oh, I can only get promoted so far. Well, then let's co- let's rewind and be like, is there even an opportunity for people of colour to apply for that job? Because you're talking about the issues that you have once you're in the job,
0: right? Yeah. Can they even get in the door?
1: Can I? Right? My name is Tigis Kabidi. Like you look at that name and it says not white. That's what it says, <laughs> right? It says that r- really clearly. And, you know, some organizations, they require certain tests um, to get into it and they require certain different kind of like interview processes and whatnot, which have been shown to strategically filter out diversity because it's centered with a particular gaze that they're looking for. So yeah. let's say I do get through, right? I'm in the door, you know, this organisation did want, like they, they weren't looking at my name, maybe they are looking at my credentials, Um, and I'm in there, I get my interview and I do well. Oh, my God, thank God I got the job now. I'm a social worker, a therapist, I'm a, you know, a tradie, I, I do whatever the, the job is that you are doing on the other side, right? And while I'm in that organisation, we are all different, we all have our different perspectives and I'm experiencing microaggressions all the time. So an example of a microaggression is someone saying to me, oh my God, Beyonce, sorry, did you just call me Beyonce in a meeting where we're discussing something
0: really important or did we yeah. just
1: like like? you see how
0: that was wow it just gave me shivers it just gave me shivers because I, <laughs> it a I feel like, <laughs> but it's but it's the same thing right it's the same kind of undercurrent of aggression. you're right there's this sting to it even though it's funny and I'm trying to maybe like create some kind of bond with you it still has a level of status and it has a level of um it has a level of racism,
1: you know. Oh, it's a hundred percent racist, right? And and it's it's called a microaggression, and it makes it sound a lot smaller than than what it is really. But it's like daily verbal, or maybe it's nonverbal, and such as behavioral indignities, whether it's, it's intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative attitudes towards a stigmatized or culturally minoritized group.
0: So tell me something just on this. Tell me how you, just in the, because we're in the moment, if someone called you Beyonce in that situation, how would you respond?
1: Like every other person who is completely shocked, I don't say anything. There is a power imbalance in the workplace. And look, I particularly chose that one because everyone's like, oh my gosh, every time they hear it, right? and it's actually not like it's really not so it's very common to be um to have my name butchered to for people to want to touch your hair or 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 comment about you know your tone or the way you pronounce something or being talked over these aren't things particular to race someone using the wrong pronouns to you all the time or saying something like oh it just get so complicated can i just call you this let's say I get enough confidence or feel that whatever was said was hostile enough that I can bring this maybe to my, to my team leader, to my supervisor, my manager, whoever the line management person is. And I go to them, Oh, manager, Karen, I'm, you know, this is what's happening to me. I'm so, you know, I'm experiencing this and this and this is happening. And most often, like I give people the benefit of the doubt. A lot of people come in there going, oh, no, I can't believe that you're experiencing this. I am so sorry, especially if people are, you know, are empathetic or have, you know, ideas and beliefs of inclusion, that they, 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 they're genuinely like, oh, no, okay, that is so awful. Let me help. How can I help? What do you want? And then it goes again without realising Bam! Straight into, oh, So, do you think that they're all like trying to do that to hurt you, or oh, you know, maybe she she didn't mean it like that, or you know, how do you think we can make a change? Do you do you want to come back to me and tell me how we can change the culture? Do you want to lead the wow. training for yeah. that? And I'm I'm not all saying this at once. Again, this is like a reenactment, but I'm am these are the attitudes enforced, yeah. right? And then what ends up happening is we have a culture in our workplaces whereby these microaggressions occur and that there is actually not enough understanding, training, acknowledgement, policies, um, response from the institutions or the, like the places that we work. So it, what it does is it further isolates you, but it reinforces the status quo once it gets escalated people are starting to notice and they're like but you know but you know Jenny and and Tom they didn't mean that and like do you and then it becomes an individual thing for that person it's like you know are you being too sensitive or are you and it become and, and the microaggressions are reflected back to the person by managers
0: yeah yeah or what yeah. ends up happening
1: is that they'll, they'll cry
0: who? The manager cries?
1: Yes. Karen cries? The white feminist cries. And there's the a whole, like, if you go down the Google. I want to white talk tears. about that
0: too. I need to talk. I need to. We need, oh my lord. We're <laughs> getting.
1: The tears silence you because it like flips the script. Now I feel bad for bringing up an issue. Like it's such a gaslight that happens in that situation. And this happens on a micro level in the workplace and the macro level in the world. It is happening mm-hmm. when Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are saying Black Lives Matter, stop end deaths in custody, and then someone else turns around like you're a bit loud. Could you say it a bit quieter? I was a bit offensive when like <laughs> and it happens on such a loud level, on like this world stage where it's like like are you being serious (laughs) yeah are we not including like so anyway so this is this is what ends up happening you get the tears and you get people being really upset because it's so hard like I just don't want to cause you so much pain and I'm like oh my god Karen I need to help Karen Karen is crying and then I'll be like, no, no, no! I promise, I promise, I, w- I won't ever bring it up again. You know, I don't. Y-. And what ends up happening? What just happened here? Did I just like minimize myself for this person? Mm-hmm. Am I now? Or, or if the issue gets brought up, and 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 the fragility, and the tone policing that occurs, and the decentering that occurs, which means it stops being about the issue and it starts being about the person. You know, and how you can weaponize your privilege. Like for example, this often happens when it um, it's got to do with like a black man and a white woman, and you see it all the time in, on your TV screens, or you might see in your workplace how privilege is weaponized. How the fact that that person's a black man is seen as like well. You know, I was I was threatened by his masculinity. Right? So that that person ends up using this idea of being a woman and being fragile and being threatened by a male. But really, it was her whiteness that was being threatened. And, you know, and then and then you get other things that happen, which is like, the spiritual bypassing that might occur. That's like, how about we just like, you know, like how about we just like leave it and we just like go back and just love each other. Like, let's just namaste and pray about this. And it's like, come on, no, we're not going to pray about it. We're not, and we're not going to just like let it pass because that's what you're doing is that you're deflecting it and you're minimizing it by saying that let's leave it and let's let things be. And then, there's, or there's a white savior complex where it's like, I'm going to swoop down and save you as reclaiming Superman. I'm Superwoman, and I'm going to save all the blacks from the racism that's happening to them. And it's just like, no,
0: that's Stop not it either.
1: Centering yourself <laughs> because all these things center self.
0: Yes. They put themselves in the middle of the narrative when it's got nothing to do with them.
1: Well, I, well, I don't think the um, I don't think the solution necessarily should be up to you in these scenarios, right? And in the end of the day, so I'm you know I'm using my Karen example and all this kind of stuff. What ends up happening with this example, it's so sad story, is that this person, let's say myself, ends up leaving the organisation because you can only handle so much. And it's just you go back into circles and circles and circles and circles again where the emotional labor lies upon the minoritized person. Now, I used a black woman myself in this, but you can put any person, you can put a person with a disability, you can put a queer person, a trans person, you can put anyone in this and the similar things will occur. And I have found that the more feminist someone can be, sometimes can be just as harmful if they weren't because it becomes your blind spot. You think that you are so woke or so aware or so great at being inclusive and the whole point is that I'm not either. It's never done. Exactly. So that is what ends up happening and you end up having so much labour and, and and people of colour, minoritized people, we are already experiencing minority stress. It's seen in the mental health space. I see it. They're experiencing um, discrimination, oppression, vilification on an interpersonal level. They're experiencing it on an institutional level in the orgs that we see. And that's just like if you're working up somewhere I'm not talking about if you're on a line for Centrelink or if you're on your way to, you know, to one a, a bank or something like that, you're, you're constantly involved or going to a hospital with with hospitals and, um, and other organizations and services. So, you've got an interpersonal level, you've got an inst- institutional level, and then you've got a systemic level where we have just compounded layered and layered and layered times again and again and again when the world keeps telling you that you. And everything about you ain't shit, doesn't deserve shit, ain't going to be shit. And it is constantly a struggle to be able to do that. And you don't want to be doing that all the time because we're already carrying this. I'm already carrying the minority stress of things. And I don't want to be engaging in that when it's like I bring something to you, manager Karen, and it's brought back to me on top of all the other shit I'm going through. So I think when we talk about intersectionality, it's addressing like all of this at the same time.
0: Mm. And I want to talk about um, two elements of that situation and that example just because I just want to flesh it out further. Making, so we saw this with the BLM movement a lot. Everything has kind of been highlighted and, yes, it's also died down a lot since we had the movement. Um, and that's always when I think is the interesting, it's an interesting time to look around and see what is stuck and what people are actually committing to. But when you are faced with that situation, and someone is making you do the work, right? So for example, BLM happens, someone's called out for being a racist, right? You get the white tears, the white fragility, but underneath that you get the, what can I do? Right? Mm -hmm. I think it's more important to hear it from your experience than for me to kind of give it a voice. Can you talk to me about the real issue with having the black person responsible for educating the white person
1: it's wrong you should let just like
0: how like the way I describe it
1: is I think someone was saying to me oh I don't understand racism and because I'm and it was specifically a white cisgendered woman who said this to me and she was like I'm a white woman so I don't understand racism so I'm just really I'm like oh okay um have have you been sexually assaulted before and you know it makes context in the the fact that we've worked in as providing therapeutic services to sexually assaulted um people and she's like oh no I haven't and I'm like oh then how are you able to provide a sexual assault service if you haven't experienced sexual assault Mm. and they're like oh wait no no it's not the same because I understand sexual assault and I understand trauma and by that I'm able to apply those practices and belief systems and then do the same with race, do the same with sexuality, do the same with gender. And does that make sense?
0: It makes so much sense. But it's also like it we 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 really like on what happens especially through the BLM movement is trauma has been brought to the surface again, right? Huge amounts of trauma from the colored community is 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 laying at the top right and then the person of privilege wants to go to them in this time of being quite triggered and traumatised. even if it's not a direct trauma a a lot of the history is brought forward they want to then have someone teach them in their state right that they're coming where they are what I was understanding because I was like oh Shit. Like, I can, there's a community here that is struggling. The last thing I want to do is put pressure on them to help me get why they're upset. Right. So, what I decided to do, and I'm not saying I'm right, and you know that, and I'm very nervous about this conversation. But the only thing that I thought was okay, if I really wanted to make uh, chicken cacciatore, right. And This is probably a really shitty um, example, but if I wanted to make this thing and I wanted to understand and get it, would I go to the chef that makes it and and knows it and has lived it and has been brought up by it? Or would I just Google it, the recipe, and I'd go to the shops and I'd buy the, the cookbook and I would read it and I would learn and I would try some things out and test them and put things into practice. It's like privilege. White privilege is lazy, right? And it also expects everything to be done for them, for me. And I wanted to go, there are people that have created beautiful books, fictional and non-fictional, to help me understand this world there are Instagram accounts, there are podcasts, there are YouTube channels. There are so many beautiful resources and a lot of free ones, so don't even come to me with the I can't afford it. So many free resources to just absorb. And this isn't just for um, coloured women or men. This is for the queer community. This is for um, women's rights. This is for everything. Like you can just sit there and commit to your practice because that's your commitment to yourself. And I'm not trying to say I'm perfect, I'm so not perfect and I have so far to go, but I think ever putting that onus onto the trans person, the gay person, the coloured person, the um, disabled person and et cetera is so incredibly unfair.
1: Mm -hmm. So first off I'd be saying say person of colour, not coloured person and say person with a disability. Person
0: with a disability, <laughs> person of colour. I,
1: I, 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 I'm, 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 Even with person with a disability, I'm not 100% sure, so I don't want to. Yes, yeah, person with different abilities because I'm also someone who has different abilities, but uh, I, I believe that's the correct way. But, again, I'm sitting in un- uncertainty with that, but I'm very sure that you shouldn't be calling a coloured person a coloured person. It's fine if a person of colour calls themselves that. However, the main point that I want you to gain from this is that the response for this should be, in my understanding, and again, every, this could be different for everyone, first we need to, like, you need to decenter yourself. And what I mean by decentering yourself is, is that whether it is someone coming up to you at work and saying, Karen, no, you can't touch my hair. No, Beyonce comment wasn't funny. That girl boy comment about my partner wasn't right. Or if you're a manager or someone saying these things to you, or if you're curious about, I want to support Australian Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. around ending deaths in custody, about indigenous rights, first you need to dissenter yourself and be like, friend, it's not about you. So take yourself out and go, okay. What is happening here? What is going on? So, even if my intention, it's not about your intention. I'm sure when you made that comment, it was ignorant and you thought the curl pattern's great. I love it. Mm-hmm. But you need to understand that by decentering yourself, you go, oh, wait, this is occurring for another person. Mm-hmm. What is happening there for them? And then that's when we start to educate. So you need to actually go out and do the education yourself. You experience someone else's racism, but you don't live it. So be- And same thing with like you're experiencing other people's, you know, gender and sexuality and ability and all that kind of stuff. Because you don't live it, you get to opt out. So the onus of responsibility is upon you to educate yourself because You have the privilege of not living that life, right? And as a result, you educate. I don't want you to be going to Dr. Karen's. I want you to be looking at different voices. Are they Indigenous voices? Are they women of colour? Are they queer voices? Whose voices are you educating yourself with? Because that is also an issue that when you're trying to do anti-racist work, that you should be looking at people of colour when you're doing anti-racist work. If you're trying to do work around trans, you should be listening to trans voices about this, non-binary voices. Mm. And then you support, whether it's financially, whether it is like not being silent in your workplace when you see, hear things And it's not talking over either because that also happens when people don't say anything or when people say things on my behalf, right? So it's literally sitting in uncomfortability and learning. And the last point is doing the work, ongoingly doing the work. And when, again, when we have the privilege of not being part of a marginalised group, it means that the onus of responsibility to learn and to continuously learn is on us and i say us because i have privileges too we all do to a certain degree we all do and in this is what to me and again intersectionality might not be for everyone or i don't know why um it wouldn't be but um i i I get for a lot of people it's like all these big words or these things it is literally meaning that you have to sit in your uncomfortability and you might not lead on certain things and that your learning might and that you might not get forgiveness. You know, I might say, no, Karen, I'm sorry. I, I don't ever want to forgive you because F you, you, you hurt me too. Much. And that's my right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I have some shame right now and that's my white privilege. And I'm not. Mm. I don't want you to make me comfortable in it. But I have some shame because I used the wrong term. I I copied your terminology and I said "colored person" instead of a person of color. Now, I I think me feeling shame is important because it's a trigger, right? It's a trigger for me to find out more. And I'm not doing this to justify me making a mistake, right? Because Everyone is going to stumble in their own way throughout this conversation and throughout life because it's a constant learning. But I know now that's another lesson, don't follow the person's language. That's a real, like they're constant lessons that we need to reflect on because I want to move now into white fragility and feeling discomfort from someone in what. Ever situation, you know, all of those intersectional spaces meets you and challenges you, right? Or even just um, a simple comment challenges you, and where you meet that person. So let's discuss that for a minute, because through the BLM movement, especially, we saw a lot of people, a lot of white people, a lot of young white people, especially. Influences and that kind of thing. Making so when someone would call out their language or behavior, especially around that time, they burst out into tears. They were inconsolable. They were misunderstood. I'm not a racist. I'm trying my best. This is all a learning. All of the things, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How do we as a society? not buy into the bullshit, not buy into their pain, because it's not about them. It's not about us. How do we look at that, that Karen? Do we just leave them there? Do we just let them have their own tantrum and let them figure that out? Because I feel like it's so self-obsessed. There is no, I I don't know how to pull someone out of that. As that is my peer, like not even someone that I would have an acquaintance with, but just like as a social responsibility, how do you look at someone that is going? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. How do you do that?
1: I think it's funny because, like, I started using the term Karen, and I, you know, I love the term Karen. I know it's really uncomfortable <laughs> with people who are a named Karen. I'm I so that sorry know. that your name has been used <laughs> in this way, but. Uh, just to be really clear, like often when I speak of Karen's and I, I did a post about how a Karen and a white feminist are essentially both racist <laughs> right, right? Um, yes and and, and you, know, you can find it on Instagram, I mean if you scroll down far enough. but essentially, when I say Karen, I'm not speaking about a person, it's this um, pejorative term coming from the states and you, and you used like <laughs> because of the internet everywhere now. As um, most often a white woman uh, who is perceived as being entitled or demanding beyond the scope of what is appropriate or necessary at that time, and I think the response is already happening. It's not something that's new. Similar to how Black Lives Matter, the current movement is not new, and you know the um, staying uh, the the movement in Australia around um, end deaths in custody. Is not new. It's been going on for decades now. Um, it, it's this idea that it's that is coming from a person's entitlement. Your tears are coming from your entitlement, from a perceived threat. And what we end up doing is we gas these people up, like, and and it's often at the expense of black and brown bodies so for someone else it's uncomfortability so for for you to sit in your uncomfortability it's uncomfortable right but for me it it might be life or death in some situations yeah, it's your life it's your life it could be my job it, 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 you know what i mean it could be the difference between having the police called on me and then having to experience that and knowing how the police treat black and brown people
0: but we can't smack them Right. We can't like it's like you want to shake them out of themselves.
1: Mm -hmm. It's the job of other, it's just no, it's the job of other white people to be doing that.
0: But as a white person looking at her and going, stop, it's not about you. And then she'd get all of the messages, I'm sure. It's not about you. It's not about you. If she doesn't want to own it, right. And she doesn't want to say shit i just sank into my white privilege i just sank into my white fragility i'm deeply ashamed and she doesn't do that and move on and mm-hmm. do the learnings we just leave them to rot like some people are just too far gone no but that's why i'm saying there needs to be institutional
1: change because this isn't about this isn't about interpersonal grievances this isn't about manager karen and myself what it is it's part of institutions so It should be the institutional responsibility to respond to that. If there is a workplace microaggression occurring, it is the responsibility of the organisation to have the systems in place to train, educate, and respond appropriately to it. It should be there before you get there because last time I checked, black folk existed before this organisation did.
0: It shouldn't be people of color fighting for that policy. It actually needs to be the people of privilege enforcing that it's there. Like, is that what you're saying? Making sure those things are in place. Exactly right. So it comes
1: back to my earlier point around privilege and power. So the more privileges that you have, the more power because of your um, your closeness to um, the the. The white cisgendered, able bodied upper class man, you know that we have right. So the more power that you have, um, the more work that you should be doing to look and to to look at the impacts of your power to be ensuring that because you are closer, that you should, you are covering the backs of everyone else. And unfortunately, it's like this trickle down approach. So because white women got their voting, it trickles down you know, 60 years later, Indigenous women got their right to vote. You know, like, you know what I mean? And then it trickles yep, yep. down and then eventually trans women will get some rights too. And it shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be like we get whatever comes down at us. So it's about being aware of how your gaze changes you and actioning some of those things. Some of the things that offend me the most is the idea that like that you have positions, for example, that you shouldn't be in because of the way you identify. Maybe you shouldn't be in an identified position. If this is an Aboriginal liaison role, you should. maybe if you're not Aboriginal, you shouldn't be in that role. I would really be considering uh-huh. that. I would be really considering if this work is around, you know, working with people of colour, why is there no people of colour in this? Why is there film and a TV? Like this occurs for every, like if I'm watching, I don't watch Australian television or mainstream Australian television because the representation that is there doesn't reflect what I see when I walk outside, but it does reflect the oppression I see when I walk outside. And if people like me aren't doing it, if I'm looking at my coworker and they're just not it, then I need to be part of the solution and use the privileges that I have. Maybe I'm a fellow manager and I can see how that person is treating their staff and going, no, actually we need policies around this. You know, actually no not today. Not today, Karen. Uh so and, and using whatever privileges I have to step up and to and and to do this, to do the work and and to fight the work, both what can be seen and what cannot be seen. So behind the table and looking at your board, looking at what who's you know, who's your CEO, who's in senior management, who are in the policies, who are in government, who are in the media, who 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 are you inviting? Like the fact that you invited me to have this conversation is a lot better than you having the intersectional conversation by yourself. So I, I think that's part of the work and I think that's that's how we start to get the work done. And I'm going to tell you right now, like it's a bit of a relief at the very least for me knowing I'm, I'm brought into and I'm socialized into racism. I have internalized racism even as a black person, right? I've internalized the st- structures and systems. Why wouldn't you as as a white person also have that, right? So it's a bit of a relief knowing that this is already part of the system or it's not an individual like fault. There's no fault of you for being born the way you are, but it becomes your fault when you don't actively do anything to decolonize yourself or to relearn or to undo some of that. That's when it's your fault, when you just kind of go all will. Have you heard the term? I know we've gotten pretty heavy, but, like, have you heard the term I want to be, I want to have the confidence and the lifestyle of a mediocre white man? No. <laughs> it's this idea. Yes, <laughs> it's this idea yes. of, like, white mediocrity, especially in men or um, cisgendered men, is, like, luxurious. It'll be, like, some, like, not so attractive, just whatever looking um. White cisgendered man will have this like great career path and like will be this great actor and will have this um, like, and you're looking at them like, you know, like you actually have done nothing, but you have like, yeah. I want to ha- like, but it's this. So, for for me, it's like, yes, it's funny, it's a joke, yeah, let's all be the mediocre white man, but, but it's, it's actually true. quite
0: harmful. Yes, I want to um ask you about. So, we've discussed intersectionality, we've discussed feminism, and how that fits for everyone, inclusive of sex workers and trans women. I want to bring up sex workers because I think this is a really big one. Even if everyone gets all of those other intersex, is that right? Am I saying that right? Mm-hmm. There could still be no, 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 but sex workers, even if they're white ones, even if they're white and able-bodied and all of the things, they are not, they don't deserve rights. And I am very pro-sex work. I think it's a very valid community. Can you help us understand the importance that intersectional encompasses all of that, including sex workers? When
1: I think of sex work and feminism, I think of SWERFs, Sex Work Exclusionary Radical Feminism, S-W-E-R-F. And it emerges out of um, this intersectional approach of, you know, intersectional feminism and all that kind of stuff. And it's characterized primarily by discrimination against individuals engaged in sex work, right? And mm. it could be all types of sex work, but, I personally think it's an argument around class and seeing sex work as something that is lower than something that you should be doing um, if you have no choice, and and not really acknowledging the fact that people can engage in sex work, be proud of it, and be feminists and be, you know, fighting for equality. And I think that comes from a patriarchal view of seeing that as something that is wrong. Yeah. There's also TERFs, which is trans-exclusionary radical feminism, and that's what you see with a lot of people who don't acknowledge the trans women's experience as a woman's experience. Mm-hmm. And it completely, I, I think it completely disg- disregards intersectionality. It completely disregards those persons' experiences. And I think it does have patriar- patriarchal and misogynistic tones to it because we're only believing those things because of our belief systems out of patriarchy. And our belief systems around sex work, which comes out of patriarchy and misogyny and all that kind of stuff, I, I hopefully that explains. Just to, like, make sure I'm really clear, like, because what happens is, is you know, SWERFs fail to distinguish the difference. This is what it's the main thing is, is that they're focusing on human trafficking and seeing that as, like, as awful and, and that is part of um, it, it, it does occur. It doesn't dist- distinguish the difference of individuals who from their own choice enter the yes. sex work industry and who are not victims of human trafficking. Right. And, and I think they, they conjugate those two together. If sex workers are telling you it's not it, listen to them Listen and do not go. Well, uh, my experience is that I'm right about this as someone who's not a sex worker. And, so, and it's, Yeah, and I I think it's what happens in in all the work and I I think, yeah, I think that's where I really stand. And, again, I'm not a sex worker, I'm not someone who's trans and the same thing is occurring for people who are trans as well. Um, But we really need to be listening to these communities and listening and being really critical about, you know, where we're coming from and, and learning to change and making that change something that's lifelong I think is really important.
0: Whoa. So, final question. Mm. Tiggist, who are you when no one's watching? I'm me. I am
1: a black woman who is so proud of her heritage, who is so proud of the, the blood that runs through her veins, who is so proud of all the things that she has achieved but also acknowledges that there's so much trauma out there and that will cry um, but also, you know, sit in her undies and laugh at, at the Karens <laughs> 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 and, you know, uh, laugh at the mediocre white men and um, that's me, someone who, who's able to have these varied experiences based off all the different parts of who I am and when I'm alone and when I'm sitting there and no one's watching me I'm both saddened and really hurt by it but also sitting in the joy of how amazing it is to be part of these
0: different intersex and identities Mm. so beautiful such a interesting eye-opening conversation I know I've got lots of work to do and I hope you have inspired so many people listening to also do the work so thank you for all your time
1: yeah thank you so much for having me and you look we can continue the conversation it's always happening you can definitely jump on the colored therapist on instagram on uh, TikTok as well or 30 <laughs> by Tiggist on Twitter. You know, I'm never going to tell you about how amazing TikTok has been and how amazing laughing and joy has been <laughs> when in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of, like, such difficult times that just laughing at a 15-second video is, like, revolutionary right now.
0: You you are very funny on TikTok, very funny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> just jump in, have it. A- you know, watch my videos where I make fun of everything and everyone um, but also have these conversations ongoingly because they're not going to end and I think it is part of sitting with both of our uncomfortabilities and there's a lot of learning that we need to do um, and there's a lot of learning that I need to do um, and I think I think there's a lot of learning that your viewers need to do. This world is, is not the best but we can make it better. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and it, look, it hasn't had enough change, so we got to make it. We got to make the moves. So we thank you.
1: We got this. No, thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Deep. If it's left you with any burning questions for me or our guests, please hit us up by direct message on Instagram at What's the Deep. luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, everybody. It is Zoe here. Change is coming to the deep. I want to welcome you to Arise. It's uplifting. It's quirky. It's curious.